0: Julian Assange extradition trial. Shameful martyrization continues. The following information is to a large extent a presentation in abbreviated form of information available from Craig Murray's web diary of his attendance at the trial's public gallery with some reference also from the Julian Assange defense website to both of which we are most grateful. We have both paraphrased and quoted extensively from these sources with a view to bringing the important information they have gathered to as wide as an audience as possible. Julian Assange's trial is brought to life Franz Kafka's famous dystopian novel, The Trial. To quote the opening sentence, Someone must have been telling lies about Joseph K. for without having done anything wrong, he was arrested one fine morning. The extradition trial of Julian Assange began on 25th February 2020, and was then postponed to the 7th of September 2020. Far from having done anything wrong, he had done positively good. A View of Dystopia From the very first day, the Kafkaesque nature of the trial became evident in the original choice of venue itself. It was held, originally, in Woolwich Magistrates Court, located in the precincts of Woolwich Crown Court, a specialist court for the trial of terrorists, though Vanessa Baratza The stipendiary magistrate hearing the case was provided by Westminster Westminster Magistrates Court. And not only was Julian treated as a terrorist, seated at the back of the court, enclosed behind a bulletproof screen, but every attempt was made to restrict public access to the trial. The public gallery of the chosen courtroom held only 16 seats, although the case is one of extreme public interest. Craig Murray described the physical surroundings of the court in the following terms. Attached t- to a prisoner on a windswept marsh from far from any normal social center, an island accessible only through a navigating a maze of dual carriageways, the entire location and architecture of the building is predicated on preventing public access. It is surrounded by a continuation of the same extremely heavy-duty steel-paling barrier that surrounds the prison. It is the most extraordinary thing, a courthouse, which is a part of the prison system itself, a place... We are already considered guilty and in jail on arrival. Woolwich Crown Court is nothing but the physical negation of the presumption of innocence, the very incarnation of injustice in unyielding steel, concrete and armoured glass. It is in truth just the sentencing wing of Belmarsh Prison. Indeed, if a single day at Woolwich Crown Court does not convince you the existence of liberal democracy is now a lie, then your mind must be very closed indeed. Universal Suppression of Freedom of Speech Of special note regarding the first day's proceedings was that prosecuting counsel James Lewis made a very long opening speech in which he emphasized that normal journalists who publish classified information would not be affected by any adverse decision against Mr. Assange, as the case against Mr. Assange was not that he published the information, but that he had conspired with Chelsea Manning to acquire it. Almost immediately, however, it was pointed out that under English law, it is an offence merely to publish such information, whatsoever the manner in which it was acquired, so the case very much demonstrates that all, or any journalists, who seek to expose the criminal activity of the state by publishing leaked classified documents, will, like Julian Assange, find themselves on the wrong side of the law cruel and unusual abuse of a helpless and innocent man. On the second day, proceedings started with a statement from Edward Fitzgerald, Assange's QC, that shook us rudely into life. He stated that yesterday, on the first day of trial, Julian had twice been stripped naked and searched, eleven times been handcuffed, and five times been locked up in different holding cells. On top of this, all of his court documents had been taken from him by the prison authorities, including privileged communications between his lawyers and himself, and he had been left with no ability to prepare to, antici- to participate in today's proceedings. End quote. The magistrate merely said that what the prison authorities did was outside her jurisdiction and she could do nothing about it. A biased judge. In fact, throughout the day, the magistrate went to town demonstrating her abject lack of impartiality, dismissing with contempt the defense's incontrovertible arguments. For instance, the basis of the charges being brought by the U.S. authorities is that Julian Assange helped Chelsea Manning to decode a hash key so as to enable her to access classified material. This was ridiculous because Manning, at the time in question, had full access to all the material in question without any assistance from Assange and had not even been in contact with him at the time she did access it. Evidence that this was the case emerged during Chelsea Manning's court-martial, but incredibly, Magistrate Baritzer took the view that the findings of the U.S. court-martial of Chelsea Manning did not have to be treated as, as, as fact in English legal proceedings, even in the case of agreed or uncontested evidence or prosecution evidence. English law does not allow extradition for political offences without an express treaty permitting it. The third day was taken up with the question of whether anyone could be extradited to the US for a political offence. Although the 2007 UK-US extradition treaty specifically excludes political offences, this is not the case with the 2003 Extradition Act that governs English as opposed to international law. However, Julian's counsel... Correctly pointed out that the 2003 Act cannot be relevant except in conjunction with an extradition treaty. If there is no applicable extradition treaty with a given state, then nobody can be extradited there, whether for a political offense or anything else, and the extradition can only be on the terms of the treaty in question. In legal jargon, the 2003 Act is an enabling act, which cannot stand on its own but only in conjunction with the treaty its provisions has enabled. It is true that the 2003 act enables extradition for political offenses, but it certainly does not make it mandatory for treaties to include extradition for political offenses. The prosecution also tried to allege that the offenses with which Julian has been charged in the US courts were not political. If China were trying to extradite someone who had published any of its state secrets, It goes without saying that no such suggestion would be remotely tenable. The arguments on the extradition points continued into the fourth day, where it was notable that whereas Magistrate Barrett listened with careful attention to the largely specious specious arguments put forward by the prosecution, she continually interrupted the arguments being put forward by the defense, although in law they were unanswerable. New charges added to the prosecution's case. What the trial so far had brought to the fore, however, was the embarrassing weakness of the U.S. case for extradition. The case was adjourned until May, with both sides having agreed they needed more time to prepare their case. As a result of the intervention of the COVID crisis, however, the reopening was postponed until the 7th of September at the Old Bailey. In the meantime, the U.S. Department of Justice deemed it it politic to try and bolster its very weak case for extradition by updating its indictment to accuse the WikiLeaks founder of soliciting hackers to break into the Icelandic government's computers to steal information that could be leaked to embarrass the government. This additional charge was presented on 25th June, the idea apparently being to add weight to the argument that Julian Assange was not a journalist, but merely a criminal hacker. In actual fact, the US hope is that if even Baritzer would be hard put to extradite on the basis of the refuted allegations made by the prosecution in February, then she might at least be prepared to extradite on the basis of alleged criminal hacking. In the meantime, the victim of US imperialism's rage at its murderous criminality being exposed to public view was to spend at least another six months in high-security lockup. By the 7th of September, the whole of Britain was on high COVID alert, which, needless to say, was seized on by authorities restrict access to the hearings. Forty NGOs that had been given permission to attend via video link had their permission revoked in the, prefect, in the pretext that it had been granted in error. The defence argued that the amendments to the indictment should not be included as they could have been included initially, but were not. The defence argued, quote, It is fundamentally unfair to introduce separate criminal allegations without notice, without time to prepare evidence, where the defence cannot properly deal with the new aspects of the case. What is happening here is abnormal, unfair and liable to create real injustice if it is allowed to continue. The appropriate course is for the court to exercise its powers to excise the new allegations. Predictably, Magistrate so refused to excise the new allegations. She also refused a request that the hearing be postponed until January to give the defence time to prepare properly how war crimes were exposed. On 9 September, the evidence of Clive Stafford Smith was heard. This British-American lawyer, licensed to practice in the UK, detailed the huge extent to which WikiLeaks had uncovered US war crimes, in Afghanistan especially. In particular, the execution without trial by drone strikes of civilians simply on the say-so of paid informants, as well as illegal rendition and torture. His evidence and that of other personalities, is of utmost importance to the case. The U.S. government is attempting to portray Julian Assange as a hacker and as someone who wanted to harm the United States, rather than as a journalist performing a public service. Experts such as Mr. Stafford Smith debunk that smear and show how Julian Assange's work carries out his ideals, using transparency to achieve justice. This did not prevent Magistrate Baratza from decreeing that witnesses for the defense were to be given a maximum time of just 30 minutes to present their evidence, while the prosecution was allowed unlimited time to cross-examine them. Mr. Stafford Smith was followed by Professor Feldstein, Chair of Broadcast Journalism at Maryland University, who has 20 years' experience as an investigative journalist. Effect of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution According to Craig Murray, quote, Feldstein stated that leaking of classified information happens with abandon in the United States. Government officials did it frequently. One academic study estimated such leaks as thousands upon thousands. There were journalists who specialized in national security and received Pulitzer Prizes for receiving such leaks on military and defense matters. Leaked material is published on a daily basis. Feldstein stated that the First Amendment protects the press and it is vital that the First Amendment does so, not because journalists are privileged but because the public have the right to know what is going on. Historically, the government had never prosecuted a publisher for publishing leaked secrets. They had prosecuted whistleblowers. Political nature of the prosecution On the 10th of September, Paul Rogers, Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University, took the stand by video link. Asked to expound on the significance of the revelations from Chelsea Manning on Afghanistan, he responded, quote, In 2001, there had been a very strong commitment in the United States to going to war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Easy initial military victories led to a feeling the nation had got back on track. George W. Bush's first State of the Union address had the atmosphere of a victory rally. But WikiLeaks' revelations in the leaked war logs reinforced the view of some analysts that this was not a true picture, that the war in Afghanistan had gone wrong from the start. It contradicted the government line that Afghanistan was a success. Similarly, the WikiLeaks evidence published in 2011 had confirmed very strongly that the Iraq war had gone badly wrong when the U.S. official narrative had been one of success. Assange had stated that he was not against the USA and there were good people in the USA who held differing views. He plainly hoped to influence U.S. policy. Rogers also referenced the statement by Mary Maguire, in nominating Julian for the Nobel Peace Prize, End quote. Rogers was asked whether the motivation for the current prosecution was criminal or political. He emphatically replied, quote, The latter. He was then asked whether Assange's political op- opinions were of a type protected by the Refugee Convention. Rogers replied that they were. Persecution for political opinion is a solid reason to ask for refugee status. Assange's actions are motivated motivated by his political stance. Another witness was Trevor Tim, co-founder of the Freedom of the Press Association in San Francisco, again via video link. Quote, Mr. Tim testified that there is a rich history in the USA of famous reporters covering defense and foreign affairs related matters drawing upon classified documents. In 1971, the Supreme Court had decided the government could not censor the New York Times from publishing the Pentagon Papers, there have been several instances of history where the government had explored using the Espionage Act to prosecute journalists, but no prosecution had ever materialized because of First Amendment constitutional rights. End quote. Mr. Tim said that if it were not for the First Amendment, quote, many great journalists would have been caught by this kind of a prosecution, including Woodward and Bernstein for the cultivation of Deep Throat. End quote. Asked about the prosecution's characterization of the provision of a dropbox by WikiLeaks to a whistleblower as criminal conspiracy, Tim replied that although the indictment was treating possession of a secure dropbox as a criminal offense, The Guardian, Washington Post, New York Times, and over 80 other news organizations have secured drop boxes for the benefit of whistleblowers, yet nobody would seriously argue that they were conspiring in espionage. With regard to the leaking of the Senate Intelligence Committee report on torture in 2014, Tim said that this vital and damning report on CIA involvement in torture had been much redacted and was based on thousands of classified documents not made available to the public. Virtually the entire media had therefore been involved in trying to obtain the classified material that revealed more of the story. Much of this material was classified, top secret, higher than the Manning material. Many newspapers appealed for whistleblowers to come forward with documents, and he had himself published an appeal to that effect in The Guardian. Summers, speaking for the defense, asked if it had ever been suggested to Tim this was criminal behavior. Tim replied no. The universal belief had been that it was the First Amendment protected free speech. The current indictment is unconstitutional. The trial was then paused because of a COVID scare on the prosecution team, but resumed again on the 14th of September. Elaborate precautions taken by Julian Assange to redact the revelations and ensure no harm to the innocent. On the 16th of September, American journalist John Goetz, who had been working for De Spiegel at the time it published WikiLeaks revelations in 2010, gave evidence. Mr. Goetz testified that In its anxiety not to reveal any material that could damage the innocent, WikiLeaks withheld 15,000 documents. Goetz testified testified that WikiLeaks spearheaded a, quote, very rigorous redaction process, beginning with the Afghanistan files. He said Assange was always very concerned with the technical aspect of trying to find the names in this massive collection of documents so that we, we could redact them so they wouldn't be published, so they wouldn't be harmed. Assange continually reminded media partners to use secure communications so that the information would not get out to the wrong people. Goetz also testified that WikiLeaks and its media partners held conversations with the U.S. government ahead of publication. The New York Times sent a delegation of reporters to the White House to discuss the release ahead of time, as the Times' Eric Schmidt emailed to Goetz immediately after the meeting. The media delegation informed the U.S. government that WikiLeaks would not be publishing some 15,000 documents within the Afghan war diaries, and they asked the White House for any technical assistance they could provide to assist with redactions. That request, God said, was met with derision. De Spiegel published an interview with Assange on the 26th of July 2010 about his harm minimization process. It asked him... The material contains military secrets and names of sources. By publishing it, aren't you endangering the lives of international troops and their informants in Afghanistan? Assange responded. The Kabul files contain no information related to current troop movements. The source went through their own harm minimization process and instructed us to conduct our usual review to make sure there was not a significant chance of innocents being negatively affected. We understand the importance of protecting confidential sources, and we understand why it is important to protect certain U.S. and ISAF sources. Goetz testified that in relation to the war in Iraq, Wikileaks' harm minimization process overshot and ended up redacting more than the U.S. Defense Department did. However, the Wikileaks documents did confirm the CIA's involvement in torture and its cover-up. Given an example of the type of stories that WikiLeaks releases assisted with, Goetz explained that he had been investigating the story of Khalid El Masri, a German citizen who was kidnapped by the CIA in Macedonia and an extraordinarily and extraordinarily rendered to a black site in Afghanistan, where he was detained and tortured in 2004. This wasn't known at the time, so Goetz searched the documents for El Masri's name, saw that he had been brought to Afghanistan and found the CIA kidnappers who'd forced al-Masri onto a military plane, sodomized him, and sent him out to Afghanistan. Goetz tracked down the CIA agents responsible in the United States, interviewed them, and reported the story. Following that broadcast, a Munich state prosecutor issued an arrest warrant for the 13-site CIA agents, but Goetz said, it turns out the arrest warrant was never actually issued to the United States. When he saw the State Department cables, he discovered that the US had pressured the German prosecutor to issue the warrant in a jurisdiction where the perpetrators didn't live, threatening repercussions otherwise. The prosecution raised an objection to a statement made by Almastra himself being entered on the court record, but Magistrate Baritzer said that this could amount to accepting the defense's evidence unchallenged. In the end, the issue was not resolved. How unredacted cables came to be published? Asked about the twenty eleven publication of unredacted cables, John Gertz explained what really happened. In February two thousand and eleven, Guardian reporters David Lee and Luke Harding published a book with a password to the unencrypted file set as the title of the chapter. The German magazine Die Freitag published this information, and as a result, others whom Assange could not control, in particular the elite site Cryptome, were able to use that password to unlock the files and published them online in full. Julian Assange and other WikiLeaks staff called Hillary Clinton's emergency phone line at the State Department warning that sources had been named, but they were ignored. Goetz also said that Assange had tried to stop de from publishing information that would lead to the release of unredacted files. Altruistic motivation. No defense. The next witness was Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg who had himself been prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Ellsberg explained that he had copied and released the Pentagon Papers, comprising 7,000 top-secret files, to the New York Times in 1971. The files demonstrated that the United States government had started and continued the Vietnam War with the knowledge that it could not be won, and that successive presidential administrations lied to Congress and the public about it. Ellsberg testified that both he and Assange felt that the Afghan and Iraq wars were wrong and that the Iraq war was a crime. What had changed, Ellsberg said, was that in Afghanistan, horrific abuses, illegal killings, and war crimes had become normalized, so much so that they appeared in low-level field reports. The Iraq and Afghanistan war logs are marked up to secrets, whereas the Pentagon Papers were all top secret. The famous collateral murder video illustrates this further. The title of the video, taken from a US Army Apache helicopter and documenting the gunning down of civilians, including journalists, children and their rescuers, was controversial when it was released in 2010. Assange was criticized for labeling labeling the actions murder, but to Ellsberg, the title caught his eye for a different reason. Quote, There was no question to me that what I was witnessing at the time was murder. In fact, the problematic word in the title was collateral, implying that it was unintended. This was murder and a war crime, so I was very glad that the American public was confronted with this. Ellsberg continued. I was very impressed that the source of these documents, Chelsea Manning, was willing to risk her liberty and even her life to make this information public. It was the first time in 40 years I saw someone else doing that, and I felt kinship toward her. Ellsberg also mentioned that at his trial under the U.S. Espionage Act, his public-spirited motivation for publishing the secret documents was deemed irrelevant. Such publication is an offense of strict liability in the U.S., and the public interest provides no defense at all. First Amendment Not Available to Foreign Nationals Prosecuted in U.S. Courts The main witness on 17th of September was Eric Lewis, a practicing U.S. attorney for 35 years. Eric Lewis has a doctorate in law from Yale and a master's in criminology from Cambridge, and is former professor in law at Georgetown University. He testified that no publisher had ever been successfully prosecuted for publishing national security information in the USA. Following the WikiLeaks publications, including the diplomatic cables and the Iraq and Afghanistan war logs, Assange had not been prosecuted because the First Amendment was considered insuperable and because of the New York Times problem there was no way to prosecute Assange without prosecuting the New York Times for publishing the same material. The New York Times had successfully pleaded the First Amendment for its publication of the Pentagon Papers, which had been upheld in a landmark Supreme Court judgment. However, Mike Pompeo argued that the free speech defense from WikiLeaks was a, quote, perversion of what our great country stands for, and claimed that the First Amendment did not apply to foreigners. It is on this basis that the U.S. Justice Department felt able to issue proceedings against Assange. Inhumane Conditions in U.S. Jails Eric Lewis confirmed that Assange's sentence, if convicted, could range from a best case of 20 years to a maximum of 175. On the question of detention conditions, Julian Assange, while on remand, would be placed in the Alexandria City Jail, where he would most probably be held under special administrative measures. After conviction, he would be held in the Supermax Prison, ADX Florence, Colorado, kept in a small cell for 22 or 23 hours a day and not allowed to meet any other prisoners. He would be allowed, out, shackled, once a day for brief exercise or recreation, separated from other prisoners. Mr. Lewis also exposed how the U.S. administration was directly interfering to prevent the International Criminal Court from investigating crimes alleged against any U.S. citizen. An executive order had been issued imposing financial sanctions and blocking the banking access of any non-U.S. national who assisted the ICC investigation into such crimes alleged against any U.S. citizen. This would affect Julian Assange. Where are our freedom-loving press? At this point, although it had not yet been possible to give evidence regarding the second indictment, the half-hour guillotine imposed by Magistrate Baratza on defense evidence came down and what followed was a lengthy and futile attempt by the prosecution to show that the witness didn't know what he was talking about. In the meantime, Craig Murray noted, The mainstream media are turning a blind eye. There were three reporters in the press gallery, one of them an intern and one representing the National Union of Journalists, NUJ. Public access continues to be restricted, and major NGOs, including Amnesty, PEN and Reporters Without Borders, Continue to be excluded both physically and from watching online. Quote, the six of us allowed in the public gallery, incidentally, have to climb 132 steps to get there, several times a day. As you know, I have a very dodgy ticker. I am with Julian's dad, John, who is 78, and another of us as a pacemaker. Not much would appear to have changed since the days of the Star Chamber. It did subsequently appear that that another six journalists representing news agencies were also listening to the trial, but few of their reports were making it to the mainstream media. This is quite extraordinary, bearing in mind that the court proceedings are making it clear that the US government is now taking the view that the First Amendment is no defense against prosecution under the US Espionage Act. The following day, 18th September, was less dramatic, but was marked by a brazen and persistent display of the u.s government's insistence that it has the right to prosecute any journalist or publication anywhere in the world that publishes u.s classified information it is clear that if julian goes down then so do the media which makes it all the more extraordinary that most of them are keeping very quiet possibly in the hope that if they are quiet the u.s state will not come from them in the way it has come for julian assange their silence brings to mind all those who kept quiet about Nazi atrocities in the hope that their own section of the population would be left alone, a misconception brought to the fore in Pastor Niemel's famous quote, first, they came for the Jews. The threat to journalism in general explicitly underlies the entire line of questioning in the afternoon session. Wikileaks did not publish unredacted cables. On Monday the 21st of September, German computer science professor Christian Grotthoff gave evidence that WikiLeaks did not publish unredacted cables. He testified about his research into the timeline of events surrounding the 2011 publication of the unredacted State Department cables. Three of the 18 counts against Assange charge him specifically with publishing the unredacted cables, and Grotthoff's testimony established that WikiLeaks was not the first outlet to publish that archive, that others published it first and yet have not been prosecuted for doing so, while WikiLeaks had taken care to encrypt the file. Several witnesses followed, who gave evidence of the great importance of the WikiLeaks revelations to the public interest. Severe danger to Assange's mental health On the 22nd of September, evidence was presented regarding Julian Assange's mental state. Dr. Michael Koppelman, Emeritus Professor of Neuropsychiatry at the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College London, gave the view that his own visits to Assange had yielded a man deprived of sleep, suffering loss of weight, a sense of preoccupation and helplessness as a result of threats to his life, the concealment of a razor blade as a means to self harm, and obsessive ruminations of ways of killing himself. Koppelman was, he sta- stated, in submissions to the court, as certain as a psychiatrist ever can be that, in the event of imminent extradition, Mr. Assange would indeed find a way to commit suicide. In response to cross-examination designed to show that the doctor was wrong, the latter in fact was able to ad- adduce further relevant information, quote. The psychiatric picture of Assange drawn by Koppelman was one of regression and severity made worse by the likelihood of harm that can arise to those with Asperger's syndrome. He had an intense suicidal preoccupation. Findings from autism specialist Dr. Simon Baron-Cohen that suicide is nine times more likely in patients with Asperger's than in the general population in England were mentioned. In December 2019, conditions proved acute. In February and March, moderately severe. The lockdown at the Belmarsh prison facility, precipitated by the coronavirus pandemic, did its share of harm. Assange had sought confession with the Catholic priest, who granted him absolution. He had drawn up a will, scribbled farewell letters to fr- family and friends, all signs of a man possibly ready for the other side. As appalling as his conditions in Belmarsh have been, including a stint in confined isolation, the conditions he would experience in North America would be far worse than anything experienced in the embassy or Belmarsh. Attention turned to the prevalence of depression during Assange's time in the Ecuadorian embassy, starting around 2015. This had caught the attention of Nils Melzer, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture. Melzer has taken the long view on Assange, that the combined effort of several states, Ecuador, the United Kingdom, United States, Sweden, had created conditions of psychological torture, part of a deliberate, progressively cruel effort. There had been, he claimed, in May 2019, a relentless and unrestrained campaign of public mobbing, intimidation and defamation against Mr. Assange, not only in the United States, but also in the United Kingdom, Sweden and more recently Ecuador. In company with two medical experts experienced in examining potential victims of torture and ill treatment, Melz's 9 May 2019 visit to Assange confirmed that his health has been seriously affected by the extreme hostile and arbitrary environments he has been exposed to for many years. Assange, in addition to physical ailments, showed all symptoms typical for prolonged exposure to psychological torture, including extreme stress, chronic anxiety, and intense psychological trauma. In November 2019, Melzer reiterated his concerns in the face of tardiness on the part of the British authorities. Despite the medical urgency of my appeal and the seriousness of the alleged violations, the UK has not undertaken any measures of investigation, prevention, and redress required under na- international law. On the 23rd of September, Dr. Quinton Deely, a National Health Service psychiatrist who specializes in autism, ADHD, and other mental health issues, took the stand to discuss Julian Assange's diagnosis of Asperger's Syndrome and Autism Spectrum Disorder, ASD. Dr. Dealey had interviewed Assange several times over a period of several months, and he spoke to Assange's partner, mother, and friends to corroborate his findings and prepare a report. Dr. Dealey also agreed with what Dr. Koppelman testified yesterday, that Assange would be a high risk of suicide if he were ordered to be extradited. U.S. Spying on Confidential Lawyer-Client Discussions On the 30th of September, the defense read several witness statements aloud in court, including two statements from anonymous former employees of UC Global, the Spanish security company led by David Morales that spied on Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. The witness statements testify to the particular zeal Morales had displayed in recording conversations between Assange and his lawyers, as well as his contract with an American company to report their recordings back to American intelligence officials. Refusal to admit rebuttal evidence. With regard to the medical evidence, objections had been raised by the prosecution about the witnesses' lack of direct knowledge of conditions in the US prisons. The defense had secured the agreement of two further witnesses to give such evidence, but the magistrate, of course, ruled the evidence as inadmissible and out of time. She thus effectively prevented any challenge to the prosecution's witnesses. U.S. government officials, who had lauded the kindly conditions in the U.S. prisons to which Assange would most probably be sent, since it had been apparently been accepted that U.S. government officials could not be cross-examined, she also decreed that closing arguments would only be made in writing, not presented in the court, which is handy for those who want to keep the Assange proceedings as far out of the public eye as possible. It is usually the closing speeches of a case that receive the most media attention. What now? Now that the hearing at the Old Bailey has come to an end, the timetable that has been accepted is that the defence will lodge their closing arguments in writing on the 30th of October, the prosecution will reply on the 13th of November, with the defence able to make a further response by the 20th of November purely on any legal questions. Baratza will then deliver her judgment in January. In his final report, Craig Murray condemned the barbarism of the whole process. In that courtroom, you were in the presence of evil, with a civilized veneer, a pretense at process, and even displays of bonhomie. The entire destruction of a human being was in process. Julian was being destroyed as a person before my eyes, for the crime of publishing the truth. He had to sit there listening to days of calm discussions as to the incredible torture that would await him in a U.S. supermax prison, deprived of all meaningful human contact for years on end, in solitary, in a cell just 50 feet square. Fifty square square feet. Mark that out yourself now. Three paces by two. Of all the terrible things I heard, Warden Bard explaining that the single hour a day allowed out of the cell is alone in another absolutely identical cell called the recreation cell, was perhaps the most chilling. That, and the foul government expert, Dr. Blackwood, describing how Julian might be sufficiently medicated and physically deprived of the means of suicide to keep him alive for years of this. The decision on whether or not to extradite will be announced on the 4th of January 2021 at midday. It is expected that whichever side loses, there will be an appeal, i.e. even if Julian Assange were to win, His detention in inhuman conditions would continue for the foreseeable future, and his two small sons would continue to be deprived of their father's presence in their lives. It is no wonder that the imperialist hyenas have taken every precaution to ensure Julian's extradition hearing received as little publicity as possible. U.S. imperialism and British imperialism arrogate to themselves the right not only to criticize alleged breaches of human rights in other countries, but also the right to intervene with bombing campaigns if they think they can get away with it, to impose on other countries their ideals of democracy and human rights. The extradition hearing has exposed their total contempt for human rights. The only rights they pursue are the right to exploit, the right to enrich themselves at the expense of others, and the right to crush all and any opposition to their predatory marauding. Free Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning. No cooperation with the imperialist war.